When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, you're listening to Rock and Roll. I'm BJ, and the book is out. It's called This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. Let's hear what Luke and Heidi from the Rock and Roll Grad School podcast have to say about it. We both loved this book. Wow, great. And, Thank you. And we do not say that to everybody we talk to. I guarantee you that. It reads so naturally and so fluidly through all of it, and you can hear all of their voices so clearly through it, as well as everybody else that chimes in. It was so good, as Luke said. Thank you. Speaking of podcasts, I got to be on the Rock and Roll Geek Show with Michael Butler. Probably the first podcast I ever listened to. Well, definitely the first podcast I ever listened to back in, it must have been 2004. Well, BJ, thank you for doing this, and congratulations on the book. It's really quite the achievement. I mean, i got to say, I'm, I am quite impressed. You have surpassed all of us lame-ass podcasters with this book. Right? <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it uh, definitely was a labor of love, and, you know, it's very nerdy and very that's what detailed. You want, that's what you want, though. But, yeah, that, that's the only thing, the only kind of cheap trick book I was going to write. Another podcast I have now unexpectedly been a guest on is Three Sides of the Coin. So so go go look for This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick.
by Brian Cramp, K-R-A-M-P, if you're going to do a Google search for it. Um, if you're a I mean, obviously, if you're a Cheek Perk fan, you want to check this out. But I mean, I, I would venture to say if you're just a, a 70s classic rock fan, this is going to be right up your alley. Yeah, it's really the story of what, of how hard these guys worked to make it, you know. So the book has already been reviewed by Record Collector Magazine and Classic Rock Magazine, both of which are a big deal. Writing for Record Collector, Rich Davenport remarks that I, quote, skillfully construct a gripping linear narrative that reads like a documentary. Writing for Classic Rock, John Azelwood remarks on my, quote, forensic doggedness and, quote, staccanovite zeal. I had to look that one up. It means an exceptionally hardworking or zealous person. So it would appear that staccanovite zeal is actually a redundant phrase and also means something very similar to forensic doggedness, but I'll take it. Writing for On Milwaukee, Bobby Tanzillo called the book a, quote, fat and extremely readable oral history. And Bobby pointed out that I am not the cramp you see on TV. You see, there is a television reporter on Fox 6 News in Milwaukee named Brian Cramp. Let's be honest, you could probably get chicken at any grocery store in Milwaukee, but there's one that's been putting out the premier poultry since 1948. I'm talking about Tower Chicken off of South 6th Street. They've been providing Milwaukee with the finest quality of fresh poultry and specialty food products for more than 70 years. Current owners Greg and Lori know how to handle a full line of poultry, including chicken, turkey, and duck. And they also carry items that are harder to find, like goose, pheasant, and rabbit. It's their Polish heritage that's led them to produce favorites like their dumplings, as well as their pierogies, and their soups, and their sausages as well. If you go check out the store, you'll see that there's many reasons that you're going to want to shop there when it comes to not only the meat, but also what goes with the dish, from the sauces to the rubs and the spices. They have a little bit of everything. Chicken, pork, beef, Extensive selections with Polish, Cajun, Italian, hot dogs, Hungarian, Slovenian, brats. If you're looking for meat for opening day, for Easter, or for just a normal weekly meal, they have it for you. All right, you ready for this one? I'm ready. From Suzanne, okay? From Suzanne. All right, why are chickens so amazing? I don't know. Why are chickens so amazing? <laughs> I like it. I like it. I knew it was, was going to be a foul joke, but I like it anyway. Oh. That's pretty oh. That was good. I have to say one of my proudest moments over the course of this saga was when Ira Robbins, the former editor for Trouser Press magazine, a music writer and critic who I've long admired, wrote an effusive blurb for the back of the book. Ira wrote that, Brian Cramp's amazing forensic investigation into the band's prehistory and early days does for Cheap Trick what Mark Lewisone did for the Beatles. Unravel myths, pin down elusive details, reveal surprising facts, identify relevant characters, and put it all in historical context. I thought I knew the story, but I learned a lot. I recently had a conversation with Ira Robbins about the book and about his thoughts and experiences relating to Cheap Trick. 
Well, congratulations again on the book. It's really great. I really, you know, found it quite eye-opening and and detailed and and uh, uh, articulate and all those good things. It really uh, hit the mark. So, bravo. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, you know, after reading the blurb that you wrote for me, uh, my attitude is like, well, this was already a success, no matter what else <laughs> happens. You know, no well, matter how many you know, copies I sell, I already feel like, okay, this was worth it. <laughs> so well, that's very, very generous of you. You know, I mean, I kind of feel like, like, you know, I, I, I was there, you know, for part of the early days, and I did a lot of stuff. But, but, you know, I'm, I, I hardly think that I'm the authority that I like to imagine myself to be just because there's so much stuff that has happened and I haven't really kept up with it the way I might have and you know I've forgotten stuff and you know I I certainly wasn't there for all of it so you know it's really I found it really um rewarding and 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 helpful to sort of read all of that stuff like kind of lined up and and you know detailed and all the stuff that you know when I was writing about them in the 70s was kind of like I think it's sort of like this but you know, you actually did the research and got the the details. Obviously, you you had a, had the benefit of, of of being you know more in the place than than I ever was. Yeah, yeah. I felt like if I'm going to do this book, this is the the time to get all of this stuff nailed down as well as I possibly can. You know, who mm-hmm. was Rick? Who was Rick playing with at this point and at this point? Because you hear, you know, that, that you've always heard these stories about these all these different projects, but it was always seemed kind of convoluted and you weren't sure. And a lot of the stuff that, that you know, they, they said in the early days were lies. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, that, that threw a lot of people off the track because, you know, they would kind of like repeat the same things over and over again. You know, like the band would make up a story on Monday and they would get repeated for a month and then the band would make up a different story on Tuesday. And then people would be like, wait, that's not what they said. You know, like, that's not what I read. You know, they, they certainly didn't make it easy for people like you and I. No. <laughs> It means a lot to me that you like the book so much and appreciated it. I mean, that's, you know, that's the exact kind of validation that, you know, would make, like I said, make me feel like, well, uh, you know, I pulled it off. <laughs> so I kind of imagine that anybody that, you know, seriously interested, I mean, you know, I'm certainly far from the only writer who spent a lot of time ruminating on Cheap Trick years and, you know, years and years ago. I mean, Carrie Baker for sure. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and now Doug Broad, you know, put his two cents in and you know a lot of people have done it so like i don't feel as if i'm the only person to have an opinion about this stuff so i'm sure i'm sure anybody that you know that that, that cares is going to have the same feeling about it that i did you know which was about your book you know which is that you know you really lined it all up and got it all down you know once and for all yeah well i had so, the opportunity so it was like you know i i kind of anticipate getting some complaints about there's too much about what happened before cheap trick it takes too long to get to to cheap trick but mm-hmm. this was the venue to get all like you said yeah, get it yeah. all down so right right um yeah no i i think i think i think the effort was worthwhile you know i mean i think you know that there doesn't need to be another book like this because you know the story after you left you know you leave it off you know it just isn't that interesting i mean it's just you know kind of the ups and downs and the backs and forths and all that other stuff but you know i mean it's it's the after story really and you you got the you know the meat of the matter yeah that's what i've said it's like everybody knows the story of being a rock star and also everything becomes much more secretive and sheltered and nobody's going to tell you the real stories and plus you know with tom being out of the band and 
you know, it's not, it's a much, it's a much messier story of Cheap Trick in the 80s. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and certainly less happy and less, yeah. less entertaining. I mean, you know, yeah. you don't really need to, to hear, you know, oh, yeah, they, they hired this producer and that didn't work out. And then they hired that producer and, you know, they got pushed around by their label. And I mean, you know, the, the amount of coverage that musical artists get now compared to in the 70s and 80s is just so vast that, you know, that, that if you really want to know what's been going on, just read, you know, it, it's been reported, you know. I mean, whereas, the you know, uh, unraveling, you know, the beginnings of a band when no one was paying attention and nobody was writing about them, that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so I, I think that that's why, you know, the book that you wrote is really valuable because it does the 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 research into the stuff that nobody was really paying attention to. I mean, no, nobody nobody was, was, was reporting on like, oh, you know, two musicians from Rockford have moved to Philadelphia and are playing with the remnants of Naz, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like, nobody cared, right? So, I, I don't know how much you've talked about it or, or have been asked about it, but I wonder what you remember about your very first impression of Cheap Trick. Was it just seeing the first album? And then hearing the first album, was that just, or, or had you seen them? Did you know who they were before you got the first album? Or was that just your first introduction to them? That was my first introduction to them. I was in Bruce Harris's office at Epic and he pulled it, pulled out a white label and said, Hey, I, you know, I got to play you this. You'll like this. And he played me maybe like one or two songs off the first album. And I was like, ah, that's really cool. And then, then they came through town um, at some point later, I, I mean, I, I could work out the dates, but I don't have them on top, top of my head, uh, and played the Yorkville Palace, mm-hmm. which was a short-lived venue on the Upper East Side, and I was completely knocked out by them. And then I did an interview with them in the uh, the Oak Room of the Plaza Hotel, <laughs> and uh, got you know I, I liked them even more. So it was very, it was kind of very, very organic and sequential of like you know album show interview. Right. Although actually, actually, the interview may have taken place right before the, the show. I can't remember now. I mean, I, again, I, I've got the dates, but I don't have it to, to, to my hand. Did they strike you as like a, a new wave band, or even in the punk realm at first, or what? Uh, where did they neither. fit? No, neither. Neither. I mean, I, I think that was one of the things that I really liked about them was that they were not one or one or the other. Right. You know, they weren't a punk band, but they were punky, and they weren't a new wave band, but they were hip. You know, and I, I mean, my, I had pretty high demand radar for like hipness, right? You know, of, of what I thought was hip. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in Kiss or, you know, or, or Ario Speedwagon or, mm-hmm. or Sticks or Van Halen. I was interested in bands that had, you know, personality and character and color and charm and all those other things, you know, intelligence and wit. And, and they kind of hit all those, those buttons all at once. It was kind of like overload for me. You know, it was kind of like, I mean, I, I, there's obviously a, a metaphorical thing to say, but, but it was like, uh, or hyperbolic things to say, but it was, it was as if like everything I ever wanted in a band had suddenly been assembled for me and put in front of me. Right. Yeah. Were, were you like a fan of Slade and Sweet and those bands? Oh, yeah, very much so. Right, right. So they had a lot of that in there at the same time, so... I certainly appreciated the move, the move, uh, uh, you know, connection that, mm-hmm. that they that they were fans and that they you know they quoted band you know move songs and and that they knew what who the move were. I mean, you know, that was another thing was that they were you know Rick and Tom were so and Bunny were very British oriented and you know Trouser Press was started as a a British rock fanzine basically and yeah. so you know that kind of was another point in their favor was that they were 
angled in the same direction that, that we were. Yeah, a lot of Rick's influences for his songwriting were the same bands that Trouser Press kind of champion. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and I've always had an affinity for, like, the Midwest and stuff like that. My father was born in Chicago, and so, you know, as little as, as few American bands as I cared about in, in like, 1976 or 77, um, you know, the fact that there was a, a band that, that I did like that came from the Midwest was kind of also a, a good thing in my my book. Right. Yeah, they kind of, I, I, I marvel at how they kind of had their own Sunset Strip slash Max's Kansas City in the Midwest that they, uh-huh. and they were like the, the kings of it. Hump and Hannah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. true. I, I, but I, I mean, but it's also that they, they had, you know, the personalities of Midwesterners, you know, I right. mean, they were, I mean, for all of the bravado and the, you know, the arrogance and the rock star, you know, we're going to be rock stars. You know, they were also kind of humble and insecure and timid and, and you know, home, homey. You know, they were, they were, they were, they were basically were nice guys, which, you know, was not something you always encountered in, in, you know, 70s rock bands. That's one thing I've heard a lot, like when I would talk to like Jay Messina or somebody mm-hmm. like that, like the he would just say, you know, the fir- my first impression was really nice guys, just really friendly, nice guys. That's just like uh, what I heard from a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Bunny was a record collector, you know, I mean, I, I, there were just a lot of good things that, that they had that registered with me. I mean, you know, I mean, I play guitar, and so the fact that Rick was a guitar freak was interesting to me, and Bunny was a record collector, you know, and, and the bands that we could talk about were all bands that I knew of. What do you think of Pado? Because <laughs> that's oh, a... I always like Pado. You do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Ollie Halsall is a great guitar player, but but the, I have one of their albums that has this really, really strange song on it, in which like there's like this dialogue, and it's like, oh, mummy, you know, and it's like this sort of weirdly, it's um, it's kind of uh, uh, incestuous. I mean, like literally incestuous sounding. It's kind of a really odd little story. It's, it's very creepy. But, you know, um, I mean, Mike Pato's voice was a little bit harsh, hard to take because it was so harsh, but, but Ollie's guitar playing is amazing. Yeah. I, I've listened to Pato, but I've never really found anything I liked about it. I remember <laughs> seeing a quote from Billy Corgan where he said that Rick kept talking about Pato and, and Billy bought one of their records for like 50 bucks and he just hated it. It's like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> And that's the one that I, I, cause I try to figure out where Rick's cause I think Rick's songwriting was so unique and different. And I try to figure out where it kind of comes from. You can hear a lot of like Alex Harvey and Roy Wood in it, of course, but uh-huh. I don't hear the Pado, but there must be like elements of it that just, you know, he's got this whole conglomeration of influences that, you know, work into it, but I've never really heard the Pado in there. <laughs> yeah, it may not be much. It may not be a songwriting influence. I think he just really admires Ollie as a guitar player. Right, right, right. Same way that, like you know, I mean, every everybody, every American rocker worth their salt is going to acknowledge Free, but I don't think very many people want to write songs that sound like like Free songs. But yeah, true. But, I mean, but we have a guitar player like Paul Kossoff, and it's like it's you know you're gonna you're gonna stand up and salute because he was such an amazing player. Yeah. So, what is your favorite Cheap Trick album? Is it the first album? Yeah, I would have to say so. Yeah. I mean, just because that's the one that, to me, has all the elements that made them great in one place at one time. Yeah, that's it's yeah. it's it's a document of the club band, 
which mm-hmm. is, I mean, so amazing. I mean, the, the yeah, the cheap trick in the clubs in the Midwest at that time with those songs, it's just kind of mind-blowing to me. And so it I, it is wonderful that we have that record where Jack Douglas just basically tried to, to get their live show mm-hmm. and, and pick their craziest songs. And right. so it is really great that we have that because it is just, absolutely great. It is a document of cheap trick in the clubs, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's great to have. It always bugged me that like that, that when I talked to Tom about like the amazing 12 string bass sound on that album, he goes, well, I didn't have a 12 string bass then. No. That's, like a, that's a jazz master. I'm like, really? How, how did you get that sound? Because I played through guitar amps. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense. I mean, I know exactly what that sounds like, you know, because cause you put a bass through a guitar amp and you get, like, less bottom and more top. Yeah, Bunny told me they almost never recorded the 12-string bass, and one of the reasons because the engineer would always say, I can't record that thing. <laughs> the uh-huh. engineers would just say, no, it right, doesn't right. work. And then Bunny <laughs> said they would, like, record the bass, and then they would record, like, a guitar part to go with the bass to try to... To recreate the twelve string. Oh, uh huh, uh huh. But he That's said, he said, if Tom would ever pull that thing out of the studio, the engineers would just say no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what was your reaction when In Color came out? That was it. Did it feel like a really drastically different approach to Cheap Trick that record, or? a good question i mean I, I i can't recall i mean it, it must have done because it, it is a drastically different record but but i think i think i was enthusiastic enough about the band that i just kind of like accepted it and and you know and and, and loved it for what it was you know i mean there's a lot a lot, a lot to like about that record i yeah. mean you know something like, something like southern girls goes goes a long way towards you know towards selling that record for me you know it's kind of like you know well there's that's exactly what i expect them to be doing you know and so um you know it's just there's some stuff on that record that's different, but but you know a lot of it is really the same. You know, and, and obviously the songs were most of the songs were left over from the first album anyway, so it wasn't as if like you know they had changed the writing. It was just more the you know the the, the, the cleaned up studio sound. And it it was fine. I mean, I, I I didn't have any real qualms about it. I mean, I want you to want me was a little bit you know hard to take just because you know it was just such such, such a, a poppy record. You know, but but otherwise, yeah, no, I I, I, I didn't have any problem with that record. Yeah, I love that album. But it really mm-hmm. is so different from the first album that it yeah. must must have been. It seems like it must have been kind of jarring at first. Yeah, but but I mean, but I mean, obviously, it was obvious that they had they had cleaned up the sound. I mean, in the sense of of you know toning everything a little down and and and, and isolating the instruments better and and you know, but but it, it was really the same band, I think. You know, I didn't, don't, 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 I don't remember thinking like, you know, they sold out or anything like that. And right. I, I've certainly, you know, and it's funny because I, a lot of times I've had very extreme reactions to what in retrospect seem like fairly minor changes in direction. You know, there's, there's records by bands that I loved, you know, for two albums and they made a third album and it's like, oh, this is complete garbage. And now I've, you know, and in doing my, my books recently, I kind of went back and re-listened to some of that stuff and it was like, wait, this sounds exactly like the one before it. I mean, like the differences are really minor. So I don't know what it was that set me, you know, completely off like that as if it had been, you know, as if they had like completely changed direction and they, ha- they hadn't. They had maybe like made some, some corrections or something like that. So I'm surprised that, that my reaction to In Color wasn't as, as extreme as it might have been, but I, I, I don't think it was. I don't, I don't think, I don't remember, 
you know, being disappointed or horrified or any of those things. Well, the songs are pretty great, so it's... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you remember how it felt when when Budokan blew up and Cheap Trick became a, a huge band? Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone through this with a bunch of bands that I've liked, where, you know, all of a sudden, kind of a private little club became like a public, you know, free-for-all. Um, and it's always a little disappointing to feel like it's been taken out of your hands. But, you know, I don't really remember... I mean, Budokan blew up in sort of a weird way, right? I mean, it was it was a, a an import that, you know, that everybody who liked the band had. And I was, you know, I, 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 I was a big fan of the import. Um, and then they just kind of released it. And it was like, okay, more people bought it. But so like, it didn't really, that didn't really have much of an impact on me. I don't think. Like, mm-hmm. I don't remember thinking like, oh, now that it's been released, it's really going to happen. I, mean, I certainly was a cheerleader for the band, so I was happy to see them have success. You know, I, I de- definitely felt as if they were kind of entering a new dimension that wasn't that I wasn't really part of. You know, and and I think that kind of did happen. You know, where their accessibility changed and stuff like that, but. You know, I mean, they got on the radio and they got on TV and stuff. But I, you know, I, I mean, I had other things going on in my life at that time, so I, I, I don't remember it being anything that I had a very strong feeling about. Okay, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I guess the the only other question I have here is, if you have any like favorite cheap trick stories or any, you know, any cheap trick story that you wanted to share. Oh yeah. I get a call from Rick one day, and he says, come meet me for lunch. He's in the city. And I'm like, okay. And I go to this restaurant in, the, in Midtown someplace, and I, I think it was probably at the time, because this is in the 70s sometime, probably the only substantial Japanese restaurant in the city. You know, there's a sushi bar, right? So we, they, they had been to Japan, of course, and had developed a, you know, at least a, a familiarity with sushi. So I get there, and it's him, and I'm trying to think... Probably Tom and Gene and Paul from Kiss, and you know they, they'd all been to Japan and they you know they were basically versant. I had never had Japanese food before. Gene starts like talking about the miso soup in front of him and referring to it as snot soup, and they basically trick me into eating a big glob of wasabi. Oh no. <laughs> You know, and I'm like, you know, completely humiliated in front of these like, you know, successful rock stars, you know, who 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 are, are friendly but not entirely impressed by me, and and I'm and I'm sitting there with like smoke coming out of my ears and tears coming streaming down my face and you know, gulping at water, you know, I, I, you know, you know what it's like to have like like an OD of, of of wasabi. It's like you feel like like the back of your nose has gone on fire. Yeah, I actually one time unwittingly. <laughs> took like a forkful of wasabi and then had to sit there and pretend like nothing was wrong, you know, <laughs> with my friends. <laughs> but this was my introduction to Japanese food with yeah. Rick and 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 Gene and and a pile of wasabi and so you know and and I'd never even had raw fish before, so that was all you know a big challenge. I was kind of like doing the best I could, but uh, yeah, that that was that was memorable. Okay, so, well, yeah. thank you so much, Ira. I mean, like I've like I tell people before the internet. Trouser Press was a was an amazing resource. The books, and then I at at some point I found a stash of the old magazines at a record store in Milwaukee, and uh-huh. it was like the because it was so hard to find out about stuff, and you know back then, sure. And uh, and as you know, being kind of a, becoming really obsessed with collecting records in the nineties, it was like Trouser Press was really important to me, and uh, 
you know, and so, yeah, it's just, uh, I really appreciate what you've had to say about the book and the blurb you wrote is just amazing. So thank you very much. And, you know, it means a lot to me. Oh, you're, you're quite welcome. And you, you earned it. And, you know, I hope the book does really well. Up next, we're going to hear a fascinating recording from March of 1977. This is Howie Klein, who was a big part of the San Francisco music scene in the late 70s. He was on the radio, wrote for the local papers, and co-founded 415 Records. This is a recording of a conversation Howie had with Rick Nielsen and Robin Zander. Obviously, it was not for the radio, so it must have been for an article that Howie was writing. It's a pretty casual conversation. You almost feel like a fly on the wall. But Rick and Robin still perpetuate some of the false information from the fake bio put out by the record company. They talk about Bunny being born in Venezuela and Tom being born in Sweden, and they can't even be honest about their ages. Robin says that he's 22, even though he's 24, and Rick tells Howie that Bunny Carlos is in his late 30s, but Bunny was 26. For the sake of time, and because it wasn't that interesting, I cut off the beginning of the recording. Except for this great quote from Rick Nielsen. How come these guys are good looking and the other guys aren't good looking? <laughs> no, I don't know. I can't help that. That was to talk, to talk to our parents or something. All right, so let's listen in on Howie Klein talking to Rick and Robin in March 1977. This is two months after the band's first album had come out. Actually, we could pin it down that this conversation is happening on March 23rd because... They played the Old Waldorf in San Francisco on the 22nd and 23rd. And you'll hear them talking about the show the night before and the show that's going to be happening that night. You two are the American guys? You're North Americans? Yeah, I'm American. And, and you were too? Yeah. A drummer, he was born in Venezuela, but he didn't live there all his life. So you'd talk, well, you'd have to talk to him yourself to know what he's like. <laughs> and, and the other player, he was born in Sweden, but he, he lived, uh, he grew up in America. So we're really, we think we're, we are Americans, so it's not like a, some international group, although we have 
different backgrounds that make it sound more international than it really is. We're, we're an American band. We're coming to your town. You had to go over to New York when you played there? Excellent. We just got things from Soho Times. You know, that's Daily News. Great. 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 Yeah. We did real well. A lot of people showed up. A lot of record company people and ICM people. We Bottom did. line, was that where we went? No, it was a place called Yorkville Palace Theater, 85th of Lexington. Mm-hmm. You know, New York. Mm-hmm. Susan Blonde was uh, kind of the hostess of the party. Mm-hmm. She organized She threw a big party up. Yes, we were on cable vision for two and a half hours, the party was. We got interviewed by Rolling Stone, we got interviewed by Cream, we got interviewed by the collecting, collector's magazines. Plus there were a lot of other groups there, like Paul Stanley was there. Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons. Well, they was pretty well, there, huh? You guys some kids, dude. Yeah, well, they like us. They they saw us uh, in New York, and not this time. They'd seen us before, and since then, they, they've been like real big boosters of our group, and they do uh, they did radio ads. On, on Rodney's show and said that they, we were their favorite band. All right. That helps. You reminded me more of ACDC than of KISS, though. I've never seen them. No? Okay. Never? No, never. I've never seen him. Yeah, I of course him. heard him, yeah, because I, I read, I read every music paper I can. So it's not I can't claim that I know nothing about these different people, but uh, I've never seen them. So I, I don't really know what they're like. I saw the guy in the front cover. He's got shorts and a hat on. So I think if I wear shorts, I think I'm. I forgot his name too. <laughs> Pardon? I forgot his name also. Angus. Oh right, Angus. Yeah. Don't know anything about him though. I don't know. Is there music like ours? But yeah, well, not you know, not really. He's you know, the good guitar playing in the, in the band. It's a hard rock, hard driven band. You didn't hear the music? No, I don't know the music. No. Good music. Uh. So you saw the show. What did you? Uh, you said you were knocked out. Or you were. You were I don't know what you said. You said something on the elevator. It's a good show. I thought it was a great show. Mm-hmm. We stayed for both sets. I'm coming back to see it tonight. All right. Sets mm-hmm. tonight will be pretty much the same. That's all right. <clears throat> we do have more material. We like when we play in the. T- we're off tomorrow. We're off. We're flying from here to Chicago, and then we'll get a night's sleep. And then we play in Kenosha, Wisconsin tomorrow, or Friday, and there we'll do three sets because we're the only act there. We'll do three sets of all different stuff. So. There's a complete other set of things that we do do live. Plus, we've probably got maybe four more sets of things that we just don't do. Things that we've done when we started that we've thrown out. And just we've got so much material, we don't, we can't do it all. What kind of uh, what kind of audience do you play for in Kenosha, Wisconsin? Is it college or something like that? College, kids, rock and rollers, rock kids. and roll kids. Yeah. Is, I mean, what is it? is it? A, a club or a theater? This is thing? a real. This is a club. It's a big. We play real big clubs like in the Midwest, like 1,200, 1,500, bigger than where we're playing here. And Provo Harem's playing here. That's, I thought that was kind of crazy. That's amazing. I mean, no one could believe it. Plus, it's, with their new album, I would think they would. It's incredible. Yeah. Good. Well, that's nice, because I, I like the intimacy of a small place, too, a smaller place. Yeah. But we're, we play a lot of big balls. Like, yeah. Friday we're in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Saturday we're in Detroit, Cobo Hall with Boston. And Sunday we're in St. Cloud, Minnesota with Kansas. And then Monday we're in uh, 
Madison, Wisconsin, playing a real big place, about 1,200 people there. And then the next night we're in Milwaukee playing with, uh, I think we're playing with ourselves. Uh, uh, playing with <laughs> a little theater there. Yeah, a little theater. It's about 1,500. And all these places will be full when we go out there. And then we have a day off, not a day off again, it's a day to fly out, because we're the, then the first we're at the Santa Monica Civic Center with the runaways. That's the first, and then the, then the second we're in Rockford, Illinois. We're we fly back. We fly back, the second, and then the third we're in Denver, and the fourth we start in Austin, Texas with a tour with the Kinks, that, which lasts till May 9th. That should be nice. That's a good audience view, right? Yeah, we played with them before. Did real well. So we work a lot. The, the two ninety nights. It seems like it's more than that to me. With the, it's the, a lot of nights. For their travel days, were it's like unbelievable. The Ramones said something like, "They said, oh, we've been playing so much this year. We did nine dates already. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Nine dates, brother. <coughs> well, we do nine shows a week." Least. Yeah. You know, the, what ha let's see, what happened with me is I got your record in the mail, and I don't know what, oh yeah, the cover made me put it on, I thought it was a nice cover, I would want to mm -hmm. pass it up, because usually I get like you know, 20 records a day, and I sell them without listening to them mostly, but this one, I don't know, because of the cover, I thought, okay, I'll put it on, and it sounded really good, I loved it. Then, uh, the record review section of Cyclone was, was all finished, and they had like a few more inches, and they said, hey, could you do a record review quick? So I said, sure, you know, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do this cheap trick record. So I just re reviewed it real quick. Then Pat saw it. Ceciliano. And he knows I write in a lot of gay papers. Uh -huh. So he called up and said, hey, let's get, these band, let's get this band out to the gay audience. Uh -huh. So I said, uh, why are they gay? He said, well, I don't know, but, like, two of the guys are real good looking. Let's, uh, you know, people really <laughs> like them. Capitalize on it. So I said, well, I don't think that's going to, like, you know, I don't think that's going to do it at all, Pat. So he said, well, you know, wait till you see them, wait till you see them. So then when you guys were coming to town, I was down in L.A. when, when you were playing at the Starwood, but it didn't work out for me to go and see you that night. I was doing other stuff. And I figured, I knew you were coming up here. So then I came to see you guys. And, you know, and that's, like, that's not like a valid thing to write about. Like, you know, some guys are good looking. It doesn't do it. But what, what interested me to do a story, in The Advocate anyway, was um, your stage persona. Which is which seemed like very, um, very you know, like really more seductive blatantly gay and seductive than yeah. than even Mick Jagger. I mean, a different kind of approach. I mean, you know, like uh, coquettish even, and flirty. Write about it. Yeah, I know. You're the writer, so you oh, I'm going to write about it. You know, I, I I I want I want you to say something though. <laughs> Duh. <Write> what? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> You want me to say, yes, I'm gay, or no, I'm gay? Great. No, you don't say that. No, you, if you want to, you can. You don't have to. No one ever says that. Right. No, no, you don't say it. But, you, but I don't know. You can say something else. You can say, uh, I like to, uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> well, you could, I like to you have fun. Say, oh, great. <laughs> you could say <laughs> I don't say anything about that. Um, There's a few people that know. Let's put it that way. Nah, that, that, that's not really what I meant anyway. I mean, uh -huh. you know, that's you know, that's not that's neither here nor there. Wait, but you gotta but write something. So you you well, write what you, what you what you saw. 
Right. That's the best. And thing see to if we write. If you're wrong, or you're right. Doesn't make much difference. I think it's it's, it's getting uh, it's getting press. I think it's worth. <laughs> but uh, if you have an opinion, if you think what uh, what we're doing, then that's that's the best way to do it. Because people they'll come up to me and say, "Hey, you guys are a." One guy told us in New York. He says, "I know the story behind your group." And he went on. He says, "Oh, what was it? I've heard the album thirty times." Blah, 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 and and you hate the Beatles, and because of that, you're getting this in that you're doing this and this. He had it all done. I says, "Jeez, sounds good." How do you right? know? How do you know so much? Whether he's right or wrong, I didn't. I didn't say, and I'm not saying now. But it's. Uh, I think it's neat that people can come up with uh, things. Their own right or wrong, I think, because that's, that's what we do. We uh, we interpret a, a few chords and make it into something that's different from someone else that uses the same chords. Yeah. And uh, we're we're four people on stage, but how, we're doing it different than than other people are doing. So writing is the same way. Like some of them, you see this and you amplify it onto the paper. You you saw it this way. The next guy saw it this way. And One we, guy said that he didn't think that in New York that. Not one, not any two people out there have the same opinion of the group. Just by watching the group, everybody kind of got a different reaction. Besides, really besides the good and bad, yeah. you guys are really great. You guys are really terrible. But after that, then they all have a different idea about what we're doing that's, and why we're that's doing. That's interesting. Because yeah. for me, like I, you know, was writing down my ideas about what I thought I was seeing last night, and then I thought, well, you know, everyone is just gonna think the same thing. You know, oh, I, mean, no. I thought, oh yeah, no I mean, way. We got we got one review. <laughs> we we thought the same way, didn't we? Or not? No. Oh great. <laughs> we had uh, two. Almost every album review has been excellent, but. There's been a couple, one, two of them, and these were two different cities and two different people I'm sure didn't know each other, said was that we were the worst album of the year, we were mm -hmm. the worst album of 77. I mean, it's said exactly the same thing. From almost. great to the exact, to the worst, of course we liked the review anyhow, mm -hmm. but it said it was the worst thing they'd ever heard. Mm, great. And it should be cut out soon and it shouldn't have been released. Also, ever. both reviews were very short and they were... You know, just kind of like hatred reviews. Jesus, that's great. That's it's like uh, Pat must have paid them to do that. <laughs> well, these were in the Midwest where we're popular, so. Yeah, there was one reviewer there last night who you know didn't seem to care for you. Know. Can't win them all. No. <laughs> but uh, we don't patronize them. I mean, we're not. Uh, we don't ask you to come up to write good reviews or write good stuff. Yeah. You know. That's up to the reviewer. So I mean, we don't we don't hate the people who write terrible stuff. Yeah. Like that. It <laughs> Maybe he's in a bad mood. Because we know, we know what we're like uh, up to a point. I mean, we, we can't do the thinking for you or thinking for our audience, but uh, we know how well we play and when we play real well and if, that the songs are good. And, and we make our own decisions. Like, if we don't like a song, we'll throw it out. Anyhow, it'll, we'll censor our own stuff before it gets censored by the audience, by people booing us or something. We know what's going on, so get a bad one. Really. In our heart, we know we're right. That's that's good. That's that's something I could write down. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what what I thought about you guys last night. Like I said, like you, I just felt like you were doing uh, this blatant rock parody, and you t you were you know, just being you know, kind of a rock star, and you were you know doing your guitar so good and just just showing that it's just so easy to do. In a way, nothing to it. Eyes closed, drinking a beer, smoking. 
doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I that's just the, I I just do that stuff because I think it's funny. You know? No, it's, it, it is. It's because if you notice, I don't think I make uh, I make funny faces, but I don't make guitar player funny faces. I don't like that. I can't stand. You could work that in. That'd be so, cute. Uh, yeah. Well, I I've done it before. <laughs> Because I like I like all those guitar players that stand up there and there. When when you're playing, <laughs> I always think that's funny to me. So then I always I always act like I'm not really playing much. And but if you listen to what I'm doing, I really I really think I'm pretty good. I'm not great. I'm a little George McLaughlin. You said you were great. Though. You oh, said, yeah. Who said that? The bass player said you were the best guitar. Oh, you said it. <laughs> so. See, everybody's saying it. Right. <laughs> right. See, I got, got him fooled, too. <laughs> um. Oh, excuse me. Yes, I am great, but not on great standards of, of certain people. I, I play what I do great. There's no one that can touch what I play. I don't know. But then I, there's certain areas I don't play great, and I don't uh, profess to be great at jazz, but I'm a, I'm a great faker of jazz. I can play stuff that sounds like I really know what I'm doing. Right. When you're when you're playing in front of larger audiences, can you maintain that uh, that rapport that you have? I mean, I was impressed when you uh, when they had an equipment breakdown and you just talked to the audience. Right. Do you have you done that in front of a couple thousand people? I sure have. Sometimes it works real good. Sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't. It depends on depends on what the audience like. Like last night's real intimate there. You play in a large hall. If uh, maybe you're the opening act, they don't know who you are, they don't care who you are, they want to know, all they want to see is the, the headline act, or if even if you're the second in line, uh, they can be restless, they don't want to know about it, they just soon get you over, they wish you'd play five minutes and get out of there. Even if they like you, you know, you're geared up, oh gee, I can't wait to see Led Zeppelin, oh, who's this crappy Jeff Beck on here, who's this... Ted Nugent, we don't want to hear him. But later they'll say, oh, yeah, geez, pretty good. But, you know, you're geared because you want to be doing this other thing. So so sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I, we've really been getting on with big audiences really well. We opened the two first dates on the Queen Tour. Those were 10,000 apiece. That was even before the album was out. Yeah. And you did okay? We did oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. where were you playing with them? What's it Madison and Milwaukee. Madison, Dane County Coliseum, Milwaukee. I don't know. Cause I, I interviewed Thin Lizzy a few, couple of days ago, a right. week ago, and Phil. they told me they did terrible. Phil was just really not happy at all with the Queen thing. Yeah, we heard there was a chance that we were going to go. Uh, they asked us to do some more dates with the Queen did, but they said Thin Lizzy was on the whole tour. Yeah. Then Queen so dropped off for a while, you know. That, right? Pardon? Queen dropped off the tour for a while. Yeah, because of Freddie's voice. Well, uh, you know, the, the night before Queen was blown off the stage by Thin Lizzy here in San Francisco. Oh. And then they just, uh, you know, coincidentally happened to drop off the stage for the rest of the California dates with Thin Lizzy's a lot more popular than Queen. That seems to me what happened anyway. I don't know if that's just my opinion. You know, but, uh, you know like. Tim Lizzy was saying that they were being oppressed by Queen, you know, you can't do this and you can't use these lights and this kind of bullshit. Oh, yeah, that happens to us. Lots of shows. It happens to you? Oh, sure. yeah, all the time. What happens? <laughs> Same thing. That's we don't, what happens. We don't get, get all the lights. PA, we don't get all the lights. This is the, 
us, like, sure, we're on a different scale. Like when we play in the Midwest and we'll have a backup room, we'll let them have whatever they want. Big deal. When people really come to see us and they're not, we don't get uptight about that kind of stuff. But a lot of the m major acts and the groups that are up and coming, this, oh man, we've been struggling too long. Fuck these guys. We're going we're gonna, to uh, do the same that has been done to us. The, the negative golden rule. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you something. There's groups that uh, have done it to us. I'm not going to mention names because we have to still work with them. Yeah. They know who they are. Well, next, in the next stone is never right. forget who they are. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we would probably never. We wouldn't do, do the same anyone, thing. Whatever. That's what Thin Lizzy told me like three days before they did it. <laughs> I had a, you'll see it in the Rolling Stone. Like there's a thing in the random notes. Like not the, this issue, but the issue after that with a quote from Finn Lizzy saying what Queen did to them and how they would never do it. Three yeah. days later, them doing the same thing to Sammy and then Sammy talking about that. The thing is, is it doesn't seem, they're really uptight, you know. They must be or they wouldn't do it. And yeah. I, we, we're not uptight about our music. I mean, it's like we somebody... Think we're good, so... Yeah, we're, we're going to achieve a certain level and we're going to be so good that, uh, yeah, how good? Someone is going to be better than us in certain respects. Uh, I mean, there's not one band that I don't think is better than us in certain respects. Not, and also, that doesn't matter. But at the same time, we're better than any other band in our certain respects, too. So it's, it's Also, wouldn't you rather go to a, a, a hall and see two bands play and have a real good show and a real good time than to come and see one band get unplugged or a crummy band play and then one... Yeah. Band, good band. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's always good to have a good show because you walk away with a good feeling. Mm -hmm. So uh, we wouldn't want to make anybody sound terrible or anything like that. Yeah, because it just makes you it wrecks our show. That's part of our show as a band that's starting out, you know. Like last night. <laughs> 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 yeah, why'd you bring her along with you guys? We didn't bring her. Uh, I was just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> she was, uh... She was a last minute replacement. I heard she was like a secretary at the club. That's or what she said, yeah. Her and father uh, died of cancer or something. I don't know. Grandmother walks her dog. So she was uh, added because there was a, a Lieber Krebs group that was supposed to back us up, and they canceled like right before. So. Afraid, I guess. There I you must go. have read Hilburn's review. <laughs> Did you, uh, how big are you going to get? Huge. That's what it said in there. How huge? Well, um, some people say that on the Aerosmith level, mm. that's what it said in line. Wasn't it Jack Douglas who was your producer? Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah, I just right. talked to him this morning. Yeah. Too early I talked to him because we're having a single coming up. Uh, He's yeah. a whore, that's the single, right? Right. No. <laughs> uh, this one, it's Candy, that tune. They're going to use that. I think there's a lot of songs on there that could be used sure. as a single. So, got to start somewhere, so we'll use this and see how that goes. And I think any of them, once we're known, can be singles. It takes, it just takes a long time. How huge can we be? I don't know. It's, that's the the audience is is fickle, and our audiences that that know us love us. I mean, we have people that come and see us fifty, seventy, eighty, hundred times. Everyone we were sitting with said they're coming back tonight. <coughs> right. It's uh, it'll be a lot the same, but you'll still see more. And it's like, uh, like tonight, things I'll say on stage, they won't be the same as I said. Last night because we'll it's not really planned. Some of it is like a thank you. That's I usually say thank you if we get applause, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But the 
the amps going out and me standing there and talking. That's not part of our show. How old are you guys? Uh, different ages. Right. Which which are what? Which how old are you? Uh, so you could pass for. Uh, well, I'm not even guess. <laughs> I'm 16. And you? I'm 22. You're 22. You're 16. And uh, Bunny? Bunny is. Uh, He's in his late thirties, I believe. And uh, Tom is twenty-five, I think. Twenty-five or twenty-six. Who, who, what, <coughs> what bands do you listen to? What are your favorite bands? I listen to radio. AM. AM radio, yeah. I listen to uh, a lot of stuff. I'll do is uh, I just listen to bands that we play with. Backup bands. A lot of them I like. Uh, I like a lot of the new bands that are out today. I like a lot of the old stuff too. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Mr. Committee. Right. No, I, we play with Kansas. I think they're really good. Oh, great. Yeah. Instruction method records? Mm -hmm. Like what? Oh, Bell Bay. Like what, are the, what are the real good ones? Mel Bay is a real good one. Mel? That's, that's the one. I, yeah, Mel Bay. Mel Bay and High White. High White folklore books. Those are good too. Are you learning how to play? Yeah. I picked up the guitar two years ago and I'm playing. I'm getting pretty good at it. All right. Yeah, it sounds okay. It sounds <laughs> good. You, I mean, you could fool me. Yeah. I'm not. I don't, I don't know too much about it, but it seems okay. Do you play an instrument? Yeah, harmonica. Oh. And you, are, you, are you? Have you been listening to punk rock music? No, not really. Uh, I don't have any records. I don't even have a record player, except. I go over to Rick's house once in a while and listen to his record player. Yeah, I've heard a lot. Of, I heard Ramones. I got a kick out of some of the stuff they do. Yeah. I there's I like almost every group that's out for some reason. Like I'll say a blanket statement like, "Gee, I like Kiss." Uh, a lot of people uh, they hate them so bad that that when you say that you put them off. Or I like I like the Ramones. Oh, you're sick. How can you do that? But at the same time, I say, oh, gee, I like the Eagles. Oh, then the people that like Kiss hate the hey, Eagles or something. You know, you, you can't win with blanket statements. It was so. great. They had the Eagles before you, you, you guys came on last night. That was like the tape. The, mm. the Eagles was really nice. <laughs> what, uh, Contrast, huh? Yeah. Have you heard of the Dictators? I know who they are, but I've never heard of them. never heard of them? They're, uh, they, you, you had some elements of the Dictators in your uh, routine. Gee. It's kind of neat since I've never seen him or yeah. heard well, him. Doesn't mean you, you know, comes from the same Handsome place. Dick. Manitoba. Dick Heyman. No, Dick Manitoba. Yeah, Manitoba, right. They're coming to here, in fact, uh, next week or the week after. Oh, great. Well, say hello to him for us. I don't know him. There was, yeah, there was a band on Epic that they would cut out like, uh, you know, like five days after their album came out. Never did any ads for them or anything. Yeah. We were just at a couple, couple different places we've been have, uh, been sold out of a record. They didn't. They didn't think it was uh, you know a new artist. They ordered twenty five copies or something. And that's a lot of copies because the record company says, "Hey, order these." And so they do probably reluctantly, but they've been selling them. Seems like real well. And uh, we'll see what happens tonight. We have a lot of people there. You said there's going to be a lot of people there. Well, guess. I don't know. See, I. I mean the. I'm you not know, in charge of anything. The ones who were there last night, the people that were there last night told everyone they know that it was real good. So that'll wingle in a lot of people, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Never being here. Yeah, we gotta get going.
All right, thanks for listening, and please get yourself a copy of my book, This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. Why should you buy my book? for Rockola. Tonight we have a very interesting interview with the rock band Cheap Trick. 
I'll introduce them for you now. On your right, we have Bunny Carlos. How are we doing? And Robin Zander. Hello. On your left, we have... Tom Peterson. You don't oh, want to go first. No, I'm, I'm Rick Nielsen. This is Tom Peterson. Tom Hello, Deirdre. And I'm glad to have all of you here tonight. And I'd like to start off with Rick, since he's the most conversational. I'd like to ask you briefly how the band got started, how you formed, and where you formed. Uh, we're, uh, we've been around for many a year. We started the group in Leningrad. That was the last uh, story we had when we were together last time, when Bill was doing this interview. Since he's been fired, uh, the story is we still formed in Leningrad about five years ago, and that we couldn't get any work, and plus none of us could speak uh, speak the language. So we came back to the Midwest, and we've been uh, playing in New York City and all over the world ever since. Does that make any sense? That makes sense. It's a good reason to come back, anyway. Can you tell me where all of you are from? Bunny, where are you from originally? I was born in South America and grew up in the Chicago area. I, I grew up in the Chicago area, too. So you're all basically from Chicago? Was that you, Rick? I was born in Chicago and grew up in Venezuela. You're right. Basically from Chicago. Basically that area. Did you go to school together? Did you all grow up together or met afterwards, huh? No. Uh, the school Bunny went to was torn down before I started. Oh, I see. You're very young. You look young. <laughs> no wrinkles uh, yet from this business. Not yet. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the band Fuse? I believe Tom and Rick started that band. You were in it together? Pardon? Were you in the band Fuse together? Yeah. We're, we're, we're still friends even after that <laughs> lousy group. What kind of music did you play? Uh, let's see. I was, it was way ahead of its time. It's, it was uh, around 19... It should have been uh, released around 1998 or something like that. I think it was, it was way way ahead of its time because it sounds it still sounds crummy. We're waiting for the right year. Maybe it'll sound good in a couple more years. It's like a combination of Buddy Rich, Big Band, The Yardbirds, and Tom Jones. Did you have other members in your band, yeah, or just the two of you, or how many were in the band? Oh, it was never a duo. <laughs> never we a duo. Can, we can't take all the blame for that. Uh, there's more. There's there's some bad people in that group. Forget that. Nah, okay. it wasn't. No, a fine group, but uh, just a. Uh, We'd rather not talk. I'd rather talk about cheap tricks. I don't blame you. I just wanted to know briefly about your past. Okay. In the August issue of Crawdaddy, which you were in recently, I read the article. Very fine article. Days Ann McLean said you were the hottest opening act on a tour circuit in the Midwest. How does that make you feel? Are you excited, or have you? Do you feel like you finally made it on the rock scene, or? Well, that was. That's her quote. I don't know. Uh, we well, play, how does that we, make you feel? Do we you... play a lot. Uh, that's all I can say. You, you know, play we, a lot? We play uh, about uh, six or seven nights a week. So, I mean, that's... You're successful enough, right? That's all that matters? Enough? No, never enough. No, never enough? No. When all of you assembled and became Cheap, cheap Trick, did you feel that there was something special amongst you? Like, this is it. These guys really have it. We've got a good combination. We're going to go out there and show them about rock and roll and let everyone know that Cheap Trick is around. No? I thought Tom had some special boots, but he's still wearing them. <laughs> oh, the Midwest boots? <laughs> I did. I thought this was it. I thought you Cheap did? Trick, this is the, the group that's going to do it for me. It's <laughs> my, the only group I've ever been in. That's great. You're doing pretty well for your first band, don't you think? Yeah, I think I'm doing okay. That's good. 
What do you think? <laughs> I think you're doing fantastic. I really well, do. Well, I enjoy your music at very much. Interview, but we're great players, really. The band is excellent. But, uh, That's not true. You're good at an interview also. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know you'll accept my compliments. Yes. What part of the world would you say you're the most popular? Where your biggest fans come from? Japan? <laughs> the Amazon. Yeah. Or your family or what? Uh, no, I'd say uh, we have uh, friends all over the world. But is there one part of the country where they're really big on Cheap Trick, your sound? Maybe it's they don't have that type of music there that much and it really caught on? I would say Morristown, New Jersey. Morristown, New Jersey? Well, that's where we saw you at. It seemed good there. I know, it's been great all over the place. What can I say? Did they hang from the chandeliers in any of your concerts uh, or, like, go crazy? Not in the real high spots. I mean, it's a, when it's a low ceiling, lots of people are always in chandeliers whenever we play. <laughs> yeah, we, Especially you, right? Of course. Um, last year, you played 300 one-nighters. I'm wondering... Um, 302. 302, to be exact. How does that feel? Does that really tire you out? Do you ever wish you could have a nine-to-five job and just come home, relax, turn on the tube, and have your wife make dinner for you? Or you prefer this life? Uh, gee. Holiday Inn make dinner for you. Right. Holiday Inn, how's your food? Horrible. Um, yeah. Howard Johnson, any better? Hojo's, bad. Hojo's, bad. Yeah. I said we shouldn't give anyone any press. No, I mean, this, it's... it's uh, it's our own choose. It's our own choice to be out on the road, and it's we have to accept this, the crummy food and the the traveling around and going all over the world and getting paid for it. It's the price you have to pay for fame, right? Yeah, I mean it's fun. We like what we do, and we 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 play good music. What can I say? We play good music, and we the food stinks a lot of the places, but the. Hey, uh, we we would we could do anything. I mean, Bunny could be a brain surgeon. Well, he was at one time, and I, Robin Zander. I mean, he's uh, he's done many things. I don't know how well he's done, but he's done many things. You have any hobbies? No. No. What do you do when you don't play? I always play. You always play. <laughs> Anybody have any special hobbies or other interests? I'm a magician. You're a magician? Oh, God, I wish I knew ahead of time. Yeah. I had you bring and I love around. chemistry. Really? Yeah, we yeah. Great. Well, it's Tom. I know you're too modest, but Tom used to be a great ballroom dancer. Oh, fantastic. That's where you get your good moves on stage, right? I didn't, I don't he know. didn't say that. No. He didn't, you said that. You've never seen <laughs> Listen, him dance. You're spreading rumors around. Are you? No? Okay, let's move on to other subjects. When you pl started playing in clubs, you were playing original music. Did you find it hard the audience wouldn't accept original music, or did they take to you right away? I know that's a problem. Yeah. Well, don't you find that overall people want to hear the top 40 or things they're familiar with? They don't want to hear what other people are playing, or what? What is the story? That was a little weird the way you phrased <laughs> that, but... Uh, I know I'm a little uh, weird. I say, we didn't want to play the top 40. We wanted to play original tunes, and so we just uh, said, look, we're going to do this, and if it works, great. And luckily it did, because we built a big following in, in the two years before we recorded. So uh, we built a big following in the Midwest and in the West Coast and stuff like that just by going out and doing original stuff, and people did like us. So I guess it did depend upon the club, what the club owner wanted you to play, what he thought would draw a crowd. What the club owner, the club owners usually had no idea what was going on, so you couldn't go by them. We had to go by the fans, because the club owners were usually uh, jerks. They still are, most club owners are jerks. And all the club owners out there are watching you now. <laughs> I doubt it, they're too busy counting their bar receipts. <laughs> True. 
Have you, any of you ever taken any vocal or instrumental lessons? Or No, I don't take drugs. Four? Four lessons? Minutes. Four minutes? <laughs> Thank Four you. Minutes. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> we need bigger crew. Um, funny yeah, I actually think? played French horn for a couple of years. Yeah. Gee, if they get another drummer, then you can play French horn. You'll have five members. Two, three, five. How many years have you been playing French horn? I don't play anymore. You, don't, you gave that up for the drums? Yeah. You don't have time, huh? No time. I'm I see. Early. When you were all very young, did you feel like you wanted to go into performing? Has this always been in your blood or whatever? I know since I've been young, I've always wanted to perform, be in front of a camera or whatever, but... Ooh. ooh. <laughs> well, I was wondering... we're done here in a little bit here. I mean, we haven't made a camera over there. <laughs> yes, I, I always wanted to. I mean, I, I've always wanted to be in showbiz or entertain or, you know, be a mathematics teacher or something exciting. If memory serves me right, didn't you start when you were very young on the Barber of Seville? Yes, you've been doing your homework, Deidre. Yeah. Uh, yes, my to. my mother and father are opera singers, so I was around music all my life, always as a little kid. I was always running around, and I, at the age of two, wandered on stage at the Met in uh, New York City and uh, performed with, I believe it was either Aida or Barbara Seville, I'm not exactly sure, and uh, people laughed and clapped for me, and so it's... I'm, I'm happy to say more people are clapping these days than laughing. That's good. It's practice that does that, right? What, the audience or me? The audience will get... <laughs> yeah, it's hard for them to keep them uh, laughing, but uh, they do. They like our music, so they clap a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you like our music. I love it. Your latest album is Heaven Tonight. Do you feel this is your most accomplished album yet? You have three albums out now. How do you feel about this album? Somebody, somebody. I think it's our third album, so I think it's pretty good for a third album. Do you? Yeah, a lot of people have written us letters saying that they like the tunes. and matter of fact, a lot of people wrote us from our second album, In Color, and said they like the tunes. And the first album, a lot of people wrote us about that one, too. So we seem to be on the right track because people are learning how to uh, you know, really use uh, the English language, have a, quite a command, uh, and using our albums as... As a reference point, it's, uh, I think we could be a whole new breed of uh, uh, English majors and uh, very intelligent, musically intelligent uh, people growing up. That, in that's future. wonderful, Rick. I hate to stop you. <laughs> Listen, I'd like to ask you one more question. What do you prefer playing in more? Theaters, nightclubs? What's your favorite? Do you like small audiences? Do you like a big hall? Or what do you like to play the most? What do you feel most comfortable at? Yeah. Uh, the, I'd say you like a like, larger audience. I like the big Then you know you're doing good if you can bring in a lot of people. Good, good. Am, I, am I right or wrong, cold, hot? Well, I think they're all good for certain reasons. I mean, the clubs are real neat for us to play in the first place because going into a place that holds 10,000 and no one's heard of you and uh, not even selling beers, you're not going to get any people in for that. Uh, the big places... Uh, lend an intimacy that it's hard to even get in a small room and uh wait did you say the big places have intimacy oh sure tell me about it it's nice to be intimate with the 800th row it's tough that's, but it's very so that's right it's tough it's some job right it's uh it's like long distance love affairs or you have to make the person in the front row be as entertained as the person in the last row and I'm sure that's difficult to accomplish. 
It is, but uh, it's been done many times. That's Why great. I believe it. I'm, I'm very, very happy for you, and I think you're a very successful band. And I'm sure you'll go on to be more successful and spread your music around. Because I really enjoy it. I love it. It makes me move, and that makes me happy. Thanks, dear. And it's our pleasure doing the TV show here. This I'm is, uh, very happy to have you on. One of your earlier shows, or one of your first shows? Well, the first shows of this kind. We've had a show going now for about three years, and we've just started Rockola. And we're starting it off with you, which is a good oh, choice for a band, a I think. Thing. Yeah. We're number one. <laughs> remember that. He won't let you forget it, but remember. Okay, this is Deirdre Wilson saying goodnight for Rockola. Bill, take your feet off the table and help me straighten up. Nancy will be home any minute, and she's bringing some friends with her. For her friends, I don't have to clean up. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. These are the guys I told you about. Mom, Dad, oh. meet Cheap Trick. Hello. Yeah, Robin is the lead singer. Isn't he adorable? Yeah, adorable. And Tom Peterson plays the bass guitar and creates auras. That's and Rick was a cartoon character before he joined the group. Oh. And this is Venezuela. He was named after a country in South America, I think. Venezuela. They played in bars and bowling alleys and even warehouses, and now they've got an album out. Why don't you play one of the songs from your album for my parents, guys? to the college, you said. She'll meet some nice boys, you said. Cheap trick. Only rock and roll could bring them together. Only Epic Records could record their first album. Cheap trick. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 